Well, we started singing this morning, couldn't help but thinking of that. I, I don't, I think it was a kid's song, What a Mighty God We Serve. Remember that one? What a mighty God. Okay, some of you are going, huh? Don't, please, please don't. I won't, don't worry. Uh, hon, we want to sing a, come up and sing with me? No, okay, all right. Paul? No, <laughs> I can't even get him to do it. Oh. Roger? You better do it now. You better do it now. I'll sit with you. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him, heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve. Yeah, Roger. Woo. <laughs> you want to preach? <laughs> wow. That was great. All right. Well, good morning. Welcome to Heritage. My name's Glenn. This is Roger. And uh, we, we are, are glad you're here with us today. Um, yeah. So here we go. What comes to mind when you see this word? Oh, careful. Careful. Now, let me give you a hint. Let me give you a hint. The hint is don't think animals. No, that's not what we're talking about. How about the acrostic? Think about the acrostic. That's the hint. Does anybody have any idea what that is? Yeah, you got it. Greatest of all time. Some of you may have no idea, and that's okay, uh, because they're at greatest, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. And, and it's kind of been, uh, it came out of sports athletics. It was a term that I think developed first there. Uh, we talk about the greatest of all time football player, the greatest uh, quarterback of all time. Many would say now, Tom Brady, yes, um, yep. And, uh, and then we would talk about the greatest of all time basketball player, and there's always this lifelong debate. It depends on which generation of basketball, professional basketball you follow, whether the Michael Jordan or the LeBron James, and we'd have that battle. Then we might talk about the greatest of all time baseball player, and many would say Babe Ruth. I, I saw a little bit of a Braves uh, uh, Cardinals game last night, and if, you, if any of you know uh, Pujols, uh, you know, he, he is an amazing, and, and somebody used that greatest uh, of all time. And I thought, okay, that could be the greatest of all time boxer, the greatest of all time golfer. We could go on and on and on as it relates to that. But, but let me get out of the athletic realm. How about the greatest of all time president? That might be really up for debate, right? And so let me make that really easy for you. Maybe somebody like George Washington, right? We go way back to the father of our country, Abraham Lincoln, whatever that may be. But uh, how about the greatest car of all time? Now, there is no argument on this. 1963, split window Corvette, all right? That's it, yeah. <laughs> all right, saw a couple of those the other day. 
And uh, man, what a car. But uh, you, then you might have the greatest song of all time, the greatest movie of all time. And you get the idea. We could go on and on, and it would only stir up all kinds of debate and argument and emotion, and that's all right. But how about the greatest servant of all time? The greatest servant of all time. Please open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to talk about the greatest servant of all time and how that ought to affect you and I as believers today. Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to read starting at verse 20 and just read down through the text and make some comments as we go. I've got it on the screen before. If you don't have a Bible, would like to hold a hard copy other than your phone or tablet underneath the chair in front of you, Uh, We have Bibles there close at hand. Grab one of those, and it's page 690 in that Bible, page 690, uh, if you want to follow along there. But Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons, who were Zebedee's sons? I'm going to assume you said James and John, right? Is that what I heard? All right. Yeah, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him, of Jesus. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. To mom, yes, but also to James and John. They were involved in this discussion. All right, so then you move to verse 24. When the ten heard about this, right? The ten and the two, the twelve is the disciples, as we call them, the twelve. The twelve apostles, those that Jesus recruited himself as part of his uh, training team for when he would uh, send back to heaven after the resurrection. But there it is, when they heard about it, they were indignant with the two brothers, They were like, and and don't read spiritual mature into that, right? It wasn't that they, well, that's not the thing to do. It's not a very godly thing. I guarantee you, well, I I guess I don't really know, but I'm going to say, no, I don't think that was it at all. I think they were just ticked off that they weren't thinking about being at the right or left hand of the throne of God like James and John's mom was. So they're indignant. Well, Jesus sees teachable moment. Great. He was the master of the teachable moment, right? There it is, verse 25. Jesus called them, the 12, together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Now, when he says the rulers of the Gentiles, that's not a good thing. Uh, He was talking about the secular world, the Roman Empire at that time. And when he was talking about that, the rulers of the Gentiles, really, typically they're talking about people who don't know God, don't have a relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ. And so he says that, that's, they lord it over people, they exercise authority. Verse 26, not so with you. He's saying as those Christ followers that you are to the 12, instead Whoever wants to become great, here it is, great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Why? Well, just as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, 
Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, of all the men who ever walked the face of this earth, would absolutely be the one who deserved to be served. But Jesus himself says, hey, I did not come to be served. I came to serve. In fact, I came to serve in such a way that I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus had just talked, if you went back up a few verses, to verses 17 and 18 and 19, he just for the third time told his disciples that he was going to the cross and that he was going to be crucified on that cross. And then after he died, he would be buried and he would rise again. Three times at least we know of in Scripture that we're told that. He told the disciples that. They were oblivious. They, they weren't thinking. They were thinking about themselves. You see, there's no question as we think about who was the greatest servant of all time because Jesus gave his life as the greatest servant of all time but didn't stay in the grave. He rose again from the dead. And as we think about that, the disciples missed it. They, they, Jesus the third time had just told them they weren't paying attention. They were arguing amongst themselves as to who was the greatest. That's what the concern was. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You guys are distracted. You missed the whole point here. The disciples were arguing about who should have positions of power and authority because that's what was viewed in that culture just like it is today to have power and, and, and authority and control over people and the higher up the ladder you go, the more that you have and, and usually the salary goes along with that as well. So, so that's what people would want. That's what people wanted then, positions of greatness and a mom. James and John's mom is the one who asked that question initially. But again, the boys were right involved. Those two disciples were actively involved in that discussion because when Jesus, he said to them in verse 22, talking to all of them, and what parent doesn't want their kids to succeed? Right? Those of you that are parents, and if you want your kids to fail, yeah, woohoo! School's starting soon. You get to do the report cards, and then when they come home with all the Fs, right? You cheer and yell, "Good job! Let's go out for ice cream." And now you failed. Of course not. No. What parent would want their kids not to succeed? To do, they would want them to do well. They would want them to have a meaningful life, a life that the parents could be proud of and as well of course how about the individuals how about as to James and John who wouldn't want of the 12 and others to do well in life to succeed to have a position of authority to be able to say I've had a successful and meaningful life but I got to say as believers as those who know and follow Jesus Christ we are all too easily distracted by what is going on in the life that we live on this earth. We're caught up in, without even realizing it sometimes, having to have all of what, maybe not all, but enough of what's going on and what the world says is important so that we've gotten distracted from serving God. And that's why Jesus said to the disciples, he said, hey, Whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant. That's it. 
you see, because they had, after three years, just about probably at this point, three years the disciples had spent with Jesus walking all over the nation of Israel, up and down the hills and so forth and ministering to people, but they had missed the importance of serving. They were arguing about greatness. They were arguing about power and authority. They were arguing about who would be in charge. They weren't thinking about Jesus going to the cross after he just told them that. Jesus' concluding statement, you want to be great? Learn to serve. Learn to serve. And that still holds true for you and I who know Jesus today. We need to learn to serve. Let that sink in, folks. If you're you're not a note taker, at least somewhere in your Bible, either circle that or write it down. Learn to serve. That's not my words. Those are the words of Jesus himself. You want to be great? Learn to serve. Parents, you want your kids to be great? Teach them to serve. It's critical. That's what Jesus says. That's what we need to know and understand. And that was his concluding statement. And we need to grab hold of that. Serving must become a priority for all of us who know and love and follow Jesus. A priority. Not just an option. Not just when it's convenient. Not just when we have time. I think I'm going to delve into that time thing a little bit more next Sunday about that. I've been reading a book called um, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And how that we're always so busy, so hurried. And we use that as an excuse, as a reason, some would say. Not an excuse, a reason that we don't have time to serve God. Folks, that's not legit. It's just not, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get there in some way. But I can say with complete confidence that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you know and love Jesus, he wants you to serve. He wants you to serve. You need to serve. It is God's plan that you've served or that you do serve. Heritage has serving needs. Our church has serving needs in every area, every corner of the ministry of this church. Now, some would say, you know that's true? Yeah, I do. Because I don't know of one of the ministries of this church that is going on that would say, if somebody offered to serve with them, we don't need you, thanks, but no thanks. We're good. Because we have needs in every corner of the ministry of our church. And heritage needs you to serve for God's sake. For God's sake. And I, I, I don't want to get distracted and off because I, we could go down that path a little bit and talk about how many times it's easy to serve even within the ministry of a church and not have it be for, for, uh, for God. We do it for us. Because it's the thing we should do. It makes us feel good. There's satisfaction. There's meaning. There's purpose and all the rest of that. Maybe there's a big guilt thing. But we need to make sure that we serve. When we serve, we do it for God's sake. Because that's critical. So this morning, I want us to look at some factors that ought to motivate us to make serving God a priority. Some factors that ought to motivate us to make serving God a priority. And we're going to look at... uh, 
three different texts as we do that, but number one, serving is part of God's plan for saving the church. That's us. And when I say saving the church, I mean those of us as individuals who know and love Jesus Christ, who are his followers, all right? The way the church begins is, is we get saved. And when we get saved, we serve. Serving is part of our salvation and our relationship to God. In fact, I have to say it's the foundation of serving. That's where it all begins. This is really the big why. Why serve? You may be asking, why? Why does that matter? There's other somebody else. Because we're saved. Because we know Jesus. We serve because of Jesus. We serve for the glory of God. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Ephesians chapter 2. And, and actually, as I, I was sitting uh, while we were singing, and, and yes, I was thinking of what a mighty God we serve, but I, I also got thinking of, of, of this text, and I thought, man, I could preach one message just on Ephesians chapter 2 in the first 10 verses. I'm not going to do that today, but, but as we look at these verses, look at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2, um, and Paul says this, as for you, you were dead, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, you were dead, there's three D's right in here that aren't good news for us, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, there's the second D, all right, dead, disobedient, all of us who also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. There's the third D. Those without Jesus are dead, are disobedient, and deserving of God's wrath. Verse 4, but because of his, Jesus Christ, because of his, well, God, his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, look at this, made us alive with Christ. He says, you were dead. You're disobedient, completely opposite. Paul calls us in Romans enemies. That's how disobedient. But then he says, as a result, deserving of wrath, but God made us alive with Christ because of his great love for us. Even when we were dead in transgressions or sins, it is by grace you have been saved. Now look at verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, in these verses, talking about salvation, we're going to see this business of works, works, working twice in two different contexts. Look, verse 8 there, it is by grace you've been saved through faith, you've been forgiven, this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, you are not saved by works so that no one could boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We're not saved by good works, we're saved to do good works. There's a difference, and we'll talk about that here. 
But as we look at that, God prepared those good works for us in advance of our salvation. When we get saved, when we come to know Jesus, after we're dead in our sins, we're disobedient, we deserve God's wrath, but God, because he loved us, sent Jesus Christ to this earth to die on the cross. He was buried and he rose again, proving he was the Son of God, proving he was our Savior, proving he would forgive our sins and change our lives if we would believe by faith. Now, that's the gospel. Look at this. So, not by works, verse 9. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. There's nothing that we can do to deserve what God would do for us, what Jesus did for us on the cross. We don't deserve. There's nothing we can do to gain that. We can't earn it. Our works are not good enough. We've latched onto a book and give it out all the time here. We have them available um, at the Welcome Center, I think. Yep. And um, if you know of somebody that might benefit, but, but uh, the book, How Good Is Good Enough? How good is good enough? You can never be good enough. I can never be good enough. We can never do enough good things. We, we could walk as a Boy Scout years ago. We talked about walking little old ladies across the street. Now my wife is a little old lady. And I, I, you know, it's like, just kidding, sweetie. Man, I got all kinds of people. Asa, you should have come sing with us. Hey, do you want to finish? <laughs> I was going and saw about walking little old ladies. Listen, you can walk a hundred little old ladies. You can walk a little old lady across the street every day of the year. And that's not going to get you to heaven. Because there's no amount of good enough that we can satisfy. And that is why Jesus sent, or Jesus went to the cross to die for us in our place for our sins. That's critical. His grace. Isaiah said it this way, all our righteousnesses, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Paul said it this way in Titus. He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And I could go on and on and on. We can't do enough good to get to heaven by ourselves. Won't work. That's what Paul says here. Not by works in verse 9. But then he does go on, and in verse 10, he says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are God's. That word handiwork is poem. Poem. Like poetry. I was never a real poetry lover when I was in school. I kind of for a while when I first learned about it when everything rhymed. Right? It was like roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and Jane, so are you. <laughs> Trying to get out of the hole, right? <laughs> yeah. 
And I like poetry when it like that, right? But then the older I got, I got into high school, and, and in English class, I remember, we had to do sophomore English in high school, we had to do a lot of reading, but they started doing poetry, and it was like, the words didn't rhyme. I was like, what? The, what? The, who likes this stuff? Now, if you're a poetry lover, I'm sorry. That's great. I appreciate But the idea of poetry is it's a unique work of art, right? It's somebody's individual creation. They used to say that there's no two snowflakes just alike. I don't know how they ever know that, but yeah. But poems, certainly there are no two poems just alike. It's a handiwork. And God, Paul is saying that we are God's poem. Unique work of God, specially created, uniquely created, individually created. There's no two of us alike. We are God's candy work, his created work for a purpose. And the purpose is once we're saved to do good works. To serve God. That's what he says. And God prepared those good works in advance for us to do. Before we got saved. Why? Because God knew. Before we got saved, he identified works for us to do our whole manner of life. Serving is without question at the heart of our salvation. Our works are a demonstration and evidence, a proof of our salvation. But more than that, it's really a result. We serve as a result of the work of salvation. God transformed our lives. And if you don't know Jesus today, you can't serve for his glory. And it's not going to be the same. You're not going to enjoy it like you would have if you knew Jesus but the whole business is we are saved. Because we are saved, we serve. Some would say we are saved to serve. And it's critical that we understand it's a stewardship of life. Once we come to know Jesus Christ, he's given us the gifts and abilities. We'll talk about that in a minute. But as a result, serving God is being a good steward. It's just like when I talk about stewardship, we all think money. Oh, he's going to talk about money. He's going to sneak that one in there. No, no. Because serving God is every bit as an important matter of stewardship as money is. Amen. Serving is part of God's plan for saving the church. That's us. Bringing us. Once we come to know Christ, we serve. Secondly, serving is part of God's plan for building up the church. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, if you're still in Ephesians 2, turn ahead a couple chapters, but the chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And Paul said this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to the church. Paul says, Christ gave gifted individuals, gifted men to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Why? Why did he do that? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. God gave gifted men. Apostles and prophets, I think, are not part of the ministry of the church anymore today because the, in a general sense, yes, a person can be a prophet in that they proclaim truth, but not a foreteller of truth, not a predictor of truth. That's not in in 
uh, use today, I don't believe. But pastors and teachers, evangelists, and God gave those men, gifted men to the church to equip God's people. And there's three things. That, it almost sounds like when you read this, like a great job description for, job description for a pastor. To equip his people, the church, and, and to, for works of service so that the body of Christ, the church, may be built up. Well, the issue here is God gave gifted men to the church to equip his people. That's you and I. We who know Jesus. We who are part of the church. The local church here. And, and God uh, gives these gifted men, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to train, to prepare God's people, us, to serve him, right? And when we think about this, that idea of training and preparing it, just like the idea of riding a bike. If you've ever taught somebody to ride a bicycle, not a motorcycle, right? A bicycle. It's, it's like, I, you know, we went through that with all three of our kids. And if you've done that with anybody or brothers and sisters or kids or whoever, and you, 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 know, you grab hold of the handlebar and the seat and you run down to your out of breath and you let go and hope they get it, right? Sometimes they crash and fall, but it's, it's work. It takes work and, and effort and you have to want to do that. And that's the idea of serving God. I don't know that there's, I guess, balance, I wouldn't say is a gift of God, but God gives us balance. Maybe it is, certainly physically speaking, that we can walk about and stay because the older I get, it seems like I'm losing that balance, Right, but but as we talk about that, that's what happens. You work at it, and all of a sudden, boom! They're off and, and riding, and it takes work to learn. And that's the pastor, teacher, evangelist job to do works of service, equip his people for works of service. Verse twelve: We've not only been saved to serve, but we've also been gifted to serve. And we talked through, when we went through the book of uh, 1 Corinthians a number of months back last year, we talked about how that we all as individuals who know Jesus, who follow him, who love him, who have had faith in Christ and, and, and the work that Jesus did on the cross, and when we believe we're saved, we, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and we're given at least one special God-given ability for service. Every one of us have an ability to serve God that we've been given as the Spirit takes up residence in our life. There's nobody who knows Jesus that can say, oh, I, can't, I, I, can't, I can't do anything. Not true. Maybe you won't do anything. That could be true. But not that you can't do anything. Because if you know Jesus, you've been gifted. At least one. And you are responsible as a steward, to manage the gifts and abilities that he's given you to use to serve him. So that serving is critical for works of service so that the body, that's the church, the body of Christ, the church, may be built up. Built up. That happens as we use our gifts and abilities to serve one another. That's the church. What happens is that the church is built up. That's in two ways. Quantity, People, as we exercise our gifts and abilities, as we share the gospel with people, people will get saved. That will grow the church quantity-wise, but it's also quality. 
It's a spiritual maturity and growth that comes when we serve one another, when we do all, use the gifts that God's given us. And that's the quality side of things. That's the becoming more like Jesus. And I'm reading through this and I've never seen it like that. God says, look, that's more people, more like Jesus. We build up the church. More people, numbers, as people get saved, more like Jesus. Quality growth. Spiritual maturity. That's what we're talking about. Folks, listen, I came across this statistic this week. This is August 22nd from a, uh, a reading that I, I get every week. Seven to 10,000 churches in America will close their doors in the next year. The church is declining numerically, but no one seems concerned. Fewer people are reached with the gospel, but no alarm sounds. The church's impact on the community is negligible, but life continues in the church like nothing has happened. We've got to be gripped. I tell you what, God has so grabbed hold of my heart over the last number of years. I for years wanted to be like my dad. My dad could witness to somebody at a gas station pumping gas in like five minutes and he's talking to them about the Lord. And I was always like, Dad, out in the world, how do you do that? And I always thought, I want to do that. I want to be like that. And all of a sudden, I found myself there somehow and I think God gripped my heart with, with that's God's plan. Number one, he saved me. And I'm like, how can I ignore that? but I don't care who I talk to now. It doesn't matter. And I'm not saying that about me. That's God's work in my heart, just like it could be His work in your heart. But seven to 10,000 churches in America will close their doors next year. Sermon Central, they use that in, in all of their study. Wow. So whose responsibility is it to build the church? What does Paul say? All of us who know Jesus. All of us. That's what Paul says. Thirdly, serving is part of God's plan for rewarding the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. And this is what Paul says there. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We must all, we who know and love Jesus, we who follow Jesus, we who put our faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross and believe that he died in our place for our sins, we are saved. We who know Jesus will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We talked about this when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is not a judgment of sin. That happened at the cross. If you know Jesus, your sins were judged at the cross. This is a judgment of what we've done since we got saved. How we've used our time. How we've used the gifts and abilities that he's given us to serve him now until Jesus comes again or until God takes us home. And this is the judgment that we will be. He says that we may receive what is due for us, the, 
uh, do us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You say, well, there is sin right there, good or bad. No, you see, the difference is that word bad in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 is not the word that means bad in sin. It means worthless. It means worthless, useless. We will be judged as believers for how we've lived our lives for God, how we've used our gifts and abilities in serving Him now since we've been saved and we'll be judged on the things that we've done. We do a lot of useless things, folks. Huh? Sometimes I sit down on Sunday afternoon in front of a ball game and I'm like, how useless is this? And I don't think it means that. It can, if I did that all the time. If I did that 20, days, 20 hours a day, all right, now that's useless. I'm not trying to say God never intends for you to just chill. We need that. Our bodies need to be refreshed and restored and strengthened. Yes, I understand that. We all need vacation. And if you haven't taken vacation yet, please, after the last two years of COVID and people didn't go away, do that. That's, that's okay. But the idea of useless is wasting time. It becomes a habit to waste time. We waste more time than, than we use time for God. Or we do things that aren't even a waste of time. They're good things, but, but we don't do as often for God. And that's the good. And that's what Paul says. We will one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged for what is due. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and you can read verses 5 to 15 and see all of what Paul's talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, after all, what is Apollos and what is Paul? And only servants, servants through whom you believed. Because God uses us as servants to reach people for Christ. But you go down to verse 12. And he says, if anyone builds on the foundation, that's Jesus Christ, that he said in verse 11, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Their work will be shown for what it is, good or bad, good or useless. Then he goes on and he says, um, it will be revealed with fire, verse 13, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. What we've done, good or useless. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a what? A reward. Well, that's our third thing. Our third factor. Serving is part of God's plan for rewarding the church. Do you realize God's saved us? He's gifted us to serve. He's told us to serve. And then he says, and when you'll obey me, guess what? I'm going to reward you. What? Really? It's kind of like going to Manning's and getting... Well, you pick the flavor, right? And then they give you a free whipped cream on top with a cherry in it or whatever you like, right? Sprinkles or M&Ms or whatever. God says, you serve, I'll give you the ability and I'm going to reward you for it. And that's why we need to serve as well. That can't be the only motivation. It's actually what happens when we do. Because we will be judged. If what has been built survives, verse 14, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, that's the wood, hay, straw, useless stuff, the builder will suffer loss, 
but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. A saved but wasted life. Wow. You could do a study in the New Testament on crowns. There's at least five. I don't think they're an exhaustive list, but there are at least five crowns that we earn for various reasons. And basically, they all have to do with serving. So what's the bottom line? This is it. The bottom line, because we are saved, we need to serve. Look at Matthew chapter 5, and we'll wrap up here. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16. This is what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. Wow. Man, that's a message in and of itself. You and I who know and love and follow Jesus. He, Jesus says this. You are the light of the world. And then he says as he goes on. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Why would you do that? It's like you all have lights on, on, on the bedstand or something right next to your bed, so that, you know, right? Why would you do that and then cover it up? That's what he's saying. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are the light of the world. Let your light shine. And if we hadn't have already done what we did, I'd have Roger come up again and we'd do this little light of mine, right? Asa, no. But that's exactly what we're talking about. So it's real simple. Serving demonstrates your salvation. And as we wrap it up, I have three questions for you. Are you saved? Serving demonstrates your salvation. Serving is a result that comes from your salvation. So I have to ask you this morning, are you saved? Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way that your sin could be forgiven? We read about it. And you receive by faith, you believe that Jesus died in my place for my sin. And that's the only way our sin could be forgiven. And we can be guaranteed Life in heaven after we die. Only way. Do you know Jesus? You can believe that right here, right now, right today. Secondly, are you building up the church? Serving builds up the church. Are you so engaged and active in this local church that what you do, you're serving because you are committed to building up God's church? There's nothing more that matters. We talk about being too busy. Our kids are doing this. They've got school. They've got sports. They've got jobs. We've got, we've got jobs. We've got all the other things that we're committed to. I've got to tell you something, folks. I don't think that's going to cut it. It's not going to last the judgment seat of Christ. That stuff's going to burn up. I don't know. I've studied a lot on what that means, he will suffer loss. Some people say, well, how could you suffer loss? I mean, it says there's, there, there's not going to be tears in heaven. What's going to, I can't answer that. But I know loss is loss. 
Have you ever lost something and had your heart broken? I remember once as a kid, I was shoveling snow, and I probably worked two or three hours shoveling my neighbors, and he gave me $5, and somewhere between getting home to my house, I lost my $5. <laughs> it was like heartbroken. I searched and looked and couldn't find it. Listen, I don't know what the loss means when he says, you will suffer loss. Your life will be saved by fire. You're saved, but there's nothing to show for it. You will suffer loss. I don't know what that means. I can't tell you. I've searched the scriptures. I'd love help if you can tell me what that means, but I don't want to experience that kind of loss. Thirdly, are you earning rewards? Well, not unless you're serving. Our light shines when we're serving. That's what Jesus is saying. Because he says there, the end of verse 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, good, good works, and give glory. Point to your Father in heaven. That's what he's talking about. Are you earning rewards? Is serving God a priority? Is your light shining? brightly. God, we need you. You've given us all who believe the person of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God is within us. God, we need to depend on you. We need to let our light shine and be actively involved in serving you with the abilities that you've given so that we, as a result, can experience the rewards when we one day stand before you at the judgment seat of Christ. Oh God, if there's some here today who don't know Jesus, open their hearts. Cause them to see that their sin will send them to hell. And that we all deserve the wrath of God because we're dead in our sin, but Jesus died to give us life and forgive our sin, oh God. Burden our hearts who know Jesus to tell others who don't. God, help us to serve, for it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.